Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last episode, we looked at the period of time between 165 and 40 BCE. We started off with the beginning of the reign of the Hasmoneans, who combined the roles of King and Kohen Gadol into one superpower, aggressively conquered and converted the surrounding area, and butted up against neighboring empires. We discussed the growing division within Judea between the Sadducees and Pharisees, and heard about the two warring brothers, Jonathan and Aristobulus, with their scheming right-hand men Antipater, who soon rose to power. We then saw the Roman Empire occupy Judea, and ended with Antigonus and his Parthian army invading Jerusalem, sending Antipater's son Herod fleeing to Rome. This week, we will examine Herod's rise to power, his ultimate death, and its fallout, culminating in the First Jewish-Roman War. We will also get to know Josephus, one of the major historical sources of the period. Herod, who we last saw fleeing for his life from Jerusalem, arrived in Rome in around 40 BCE and was received extraordinarily well by the Romans. He quickly became very well-liked in Roman high society and got in with some of Rome's most prominent families, including the famous Mark Antony himself, who became a lifelong friend. But Herod's sojourn in Rome was never meant to be permanent, and his ultimate wish was to return home and reclaim his governorship of Judea. So, shortly after arriving in the great city, he came before the Roman Senate to ask for their support. The Senate, both impressed by the man and also happy to have a faithful friend in Judea, agreed to not only lend Herod the troops to help take back Jerusalem, but also declared him king of the Jews. And so, with his Roman legion at his back, Herod returned to Judea in 39 BCE to wage a two-year-long battle to retake Jerusalem from the Parthians. He and his army fought their way south through Galilee, where Herod had formerly been governor, and down into Judea, eventually driving Antigonus out of Jerusalem and retaking his throne. But despite its ultimate success, Herod's war ended up being a bloodbath. Many local Judeans were massacred in the fighting, including nearly half of Jerusalem's Council of Elders, called the Sanhedrin. By the end of the war, Herod had also seized for himself the power to appoint the next Kohen Gadol. The brutality of his takeover ended up turning many of the Judeans against him, making successful rule a challenge. Herod knew that in order to rule successfully, he would need to curry favor with those Judeans who were unimpressed by his brutality in war. So he set in motion a plan to win over his people. His first move had already been set in motion in the early days of the war. He had sent his first wife back to Rome and had taken a new bride, a woman named Mariamne. Mariamne had the dual advantage of being well-loved by the people and being of noble Hasmonean birth, making her a perfect choice for queen. To further please the Judeans, Herod appointed Mariamne's brother, Aristobulus III, as Kohen Gadol in Jerusalem. The plan seemed to be going just as Herod had hoped. The Judeans were very happy with their new queen and high priest, but perhaps a little too happy. Before too long, Aristobulus grew to become even more beloved than his sister, and Herod started to worry that the man might pose a threat to his own rule. And there was nothing like a bit of jealousy to bring out Herod's brutal side. 
Not long after his appointment as Kohen Gadol, Aristobulus mysteriously drowned at a party thrown by Herod in the royal palace. In 36 BCE, just one year after Herod successfully reclaimed the governorship in Jerusalem, his power was challenged by another political upheaval. Lepidus, one of the members of the Second Triumvirate, lost a critical battle that year and retreated from politics, leaving Mark Antony and Octavian as the two remaining members of the Triumvirate. And, as we have seen before, a Triumvirate of two is notoriously unstable. Lepidus's holdings in Africa defaulted to Octavian, making him ever more powerful and creating a sudden imbalance of power between Octavian and Mark Antony. Antony, wanting revenge on the Parthians after their incursion into Israel, asked Octavian to lend him some troops for an attack on Parthia. When Octavian refused, the small crack in their relationship became a chasm, which only widened over the following years. Mark Antony turned next to Cleopatra for help. Cleopatra agreed not only to lend him her Egyptian forces, but also to become Antony's lover, a bit of a scandal given that she had previously been the mistress of Caesar, Antony's best friend. Antony accepted Cleopatra's offer of an army and attacked Parthia, but his advance failed miserably after the Parthians attacked his supply chain, forcing him to retreat, defeated. As the years went on, tension between Octavian and Mark Antony continued to mount, with each ruler feeling more and more strongly that he should be the sole ruler of Rome. In 31 BCE, things finally boiled over, culminating in a fierce naval battle at the city of Actium. Although Mark Antony and Cleopatra's joint army was strong, Octavian had a particularly powerful fleet of ships, which had surrounded Antony's army, cornering them. Antony and Cleopatra could see that they were bound to lose and made a run for it, fleeing back to Alexandria and surrendering Roman rule to Octavian. Octavian chased Antony and Cleopatra all the way back to Alexandria, where the lovers ultimately committed their famous double suicide. While there, Octavian's forces also hunted down and killed Caesarion, son of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, eliminating the last possible rival for the throne. Octavian finally marched home as the official first emperor of the Roman Empire. This Roman civil war between Octavian and Mark Antony left our pal Herod in a bit of a pickle. He had initially supported Mark Antony in the conflict, who had been his friend from his time in Rome. However, now Antony was dead, and his rival was the new Roman emperor. Herod, in a show of real political chutzpah, came before Octavian and offered his loyalty, asking the emperor to be judged on the strength of my loyalty, not by the person to whom I am loyal. This declaration was somehow good enough for Octavian, and he agreed to allow Herod to continue to preside over Judea for another 33 years until his death. So Herod returned to resume his role as king of Judea under the newly minted Roman Empire, presiding over a Jewish population of whom many were still deeply unhappy with his rule. This left Herod in another tricky spot. As he continued to try to win over the people he ruled, he became increasingly paranoid that someone would come to take his throne. If anything can be said about Herod, it's that he used his strengths to his advantage. The man had a keen eye for construction, and he was quite the showman. And so, 
much of Herod's attempt to win over both the Jewish people and the Roman Emperor Octavian involved building lavish and impressive structures. He started off by building a number of spectacular palaces. He expanded the Hasmonean fort at Masada and built a massive dome-shaped palace 60 miles from Jerusalem with 200 stone steps and many beautiful pools. He constructed a bridge between the Temple Mount and Mount Zion and erected a hugely impressive city called Caesarea Maritima on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea with big amphitheaters, a huge harbor, a palace extending out over the surface of the ocean, complete with bathing pools, towers, and an ocean view. Herod's building projects extended into Jerusalem as well, where he refurbished the aqueducts initially built by Chizkiyahu and, in perhaps his biggest achievement, expanded the temple in Jerusalem. He massively enlarged the temple precinct, building new outer walls of massive limestone slabs, the western of which is what we now know as the Western Wall. These walls were so immense that the Romans actually became suspicious that they might serve a military function, as well as a religious one. As you can imagine, all of these massive building projects required a large number of day laborers, whom Herod recruited primarily from the poorer classes, often from pastoralist and farming families, who were happy for some work in the big city. However, when the projects were completed, all of these builders were suddenly out of work, often homeless, and ripe for being radicalized. It was from this group of unemployed laborers that an emerging extremist political group recruited members. The group was called the Zealots, and they were adamantly against integration with the Roman Empire and all things pagan. You can think of them as an ancient version of Al-Qaeda, a group of radicals who recruited from the young and disenfranchised. The Zealots tended to recruit these strong young men as Sicarii, essentially domestic terrorists who would hang around in public places with daggers hidden under their robes and attack those who they saw as Roman sympathizers. But the Zealots were not the only political group to emerge during Herod's rule in Roman-occupied Judea. As the Jewish society became increasingly complex, so did the political ideologies of the people. The first two of the major sects we have already heard about, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, made up of priests and other societal elites, were generally pro-integration and typically got along well with the Romans. Religiously, they believed that sticking to the five books of the Torah was the best way to go about religion. This meant that they had quite a literal interpretation of the text, and punishments for law-breaking were quite severe, including the death penalty. The Pharisees, on the other hand, felt that interpretation of the Torah was necessary, and were in the midst of developing the Oral Law, which would later become the Mishnah and Talmud. They were also much less favorable towards integration, which represented another political divide between themselves and the Sadducees. A fourth group had also emerged in the previous decades. They were called the Essenes, and while the Zealots were violent extremists, the Sadducees powerful, and the Pharisees devout, the Essenes were unique in their isolation, mysticism, and ascetism. The Essenes primarily cloistered themselves in small fringe communities, which were largely made up of men. They were a small and tight-knit group, and were meticulous about following the laws of the Torah to the letter, even above and beyond the Sadducees. They seemed to be highly suspicious of outsiders and were obsessed with the purity of Judaism, 
insisting that only Jews could press olives into oil or harvest figs. Handwashing had to be done before and after meals, and, on Shabbat, not only could work not be done, but it could not even be spoken about. And if these rules were not to be followed, the consequences were severe. Much of the information we have about the beliefs and practices of the Essene community, as well as about the wider Jewish belief in the first century, come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of scrolls discovered within a network of caves at the archaeological site called Qumran, which is located along the west bank of the Dead Sea. A huge number of scrolls were found in these caves, mostly written in Hebrew but also containing some Greek and Aramaic. Included among them were incomplete copies of almost the entire Jewish Bible, as well as many other scrolls of alternative scriptures, called the Apocrypha. What is fascinating about the Apocrypha is that it lays out a completely different account of the early days of creation than is described in the book of Genesis. And it is this alternative account that sets up much of the foundation on which the first century prophets would take hold and which would birth a new religion that would go on to change the world. According to the Apocrypha, God was not the one omnipotent divine ruler of the universe, but was instead a sort of king or commander among a collection of angels. Some of these angels were good and pure, commanded by the head angel or archangel named Michael. Other angels were wicked, called the Watchers, and led by another angel named Belial. The Watchers, for their wickedness, were banished by God from the heavens down to earth, where they bred with human women and gave birth to the Nephilim, a race of giants. These giants took after their fathers and roamed the earth, murdering humans and eating their flesh. In order to create a fresh start, God decided to summon a giant flood to wipe out the evil giants and assigned a man named Noah to restart humanity after the flood. The great flood was successful in wiping out the giants, but the evil watchers remained, confined by God to the bowels of the earth, essentially to hell. At this point, the watchers were governed by a devil-like figure named Mastema, who according to the Apocrypha was responsible for all sorts of wickedness, including masterminding the sacrificing of Isaac. All of this good angel bad angel business was a setup for the prophecy of the end of days. According to this prophecy, a time would come in which the sons of light, the good angels, would battle the sons of darkness. And at this time, of this great war, a messiah, a great human leader, would arrive, vanquishing the sons of darkness and bringing about a lasting peace, reviving all of the dead Jews and returning them to Israel, their homeland. The concept of the end of days and the prophecy foretelling the coming of the messiah seemed to be widely known and believed in the first and second centuries, and as a result, many prophets began to circulate around Judea claiming to hold knowledge about the necessary conditions for the Messiah to arrive. Needless to say, the tension in Judea was at a high simmer. Between the four rivaling Jewish sects, inter-ethnic tension between the Jews and their neighbors, the increasingly dangerous city streets being roamed by violent Sicarii, and the ever more brutal and unempathetic Roman soldiers who would just as often attack the innocent as the guilty. A lot of the tension between the Jews and Romans stemmed from some fundamental misunderstandings that Romans had about Jewish culture. For example, 
Because Jews kept kosher, they could not eat at feasts with Romans, who often served pork, an omission which the Romans took as a slight. Conversion into Judaism was also notoriously difficult, something seen as an offense by the Romans. And the fact that Jews were always requesting extra days off for Shabbat further led the Romans to view the Jews as secretive, snobby, and lazy. Adding to the conflict, the market economy of Judea was rapidly expanding, prompting many of the Jewish elite to invest in land, often taking ownership away from poorer Jews, whose housing situation rapidly became unstable. This caused a buildup of further resentment in these lower middle-class families, further disenfranchising them and causing distrust. Despite all of the trouble brewing, though, things stayed relatively calm until the year 4 CE, when King Herod died from a gruesome gastrointestinal illness. Following his death, rule of Judea and its surrounding territories was split between Herod's three sons, who would continue to rule, sometimes just as brutally as their father. But the Judean people were becoming increasingly unhappy with this system of governance, and, less than a decade later, after pleas from the Jewish residents, Rome decided to abolish the system of client kings altogether, and instead ruled Judea in the same way they ruled the rest of their empire, by entrusting governance to the Syrian proconsuls and local governors called procurators. With leadership in Judea no longer reliant on a Jewish king, the fate of the land was increasingly in the hands of the Roman emperors themselves, and much more directly impacted by their whims and desires. In the 20 years after Herod's death, the Roman Emperor Augustus, formerly Octavian, was getting on in years. Despite his age, though, he continued his attempts to conquer and control neighboring lands, and as a result, the Roman tax collectors started to become more and more aggressive in their squeezing of citizens for funds. The financial burden further exacerbated tensions between the ethnic groups in Roman cities, particularly in Caesarea, Herod's great coastal city. When Augustus finally passed away in 14 CE, it was his son, Tiberius, who took over as emperor. His initial few years of rule were relatively peaceful, but as he grew older, he started to become increasingly paranoid of losing his throne and started to torture and execute both his political rivals and even those in his inner circle. It was at this point, at the end of Augustus's reign and just before the start of Tiberius's, that a figure was born who, although he did not directly impact Jewish history while he was alive, would spawn a new religious movement that would play a massive part in Jewish history going forward. I am speaking, of course, about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I should say here that what follows is not going to be a comprehensive review of the life of Jesus, nor an in-depth interrogation of the Gospels. Rather, I felt that it was important to include a brief section on Jesus as it is his life and death that would go on to spark Christianity, which would be a major influence of Jewish history moving forward. The information I present here is on the historical Jesus, not the Jesus of faith, and as such, I will only comment on those things which historians agree are likely to be historically accurate. Because the only written source of information we have about Jesus and his life comes from the Gospels, it is these we have to rely on. And, similar to critical Bible scholars and the documentary hypothesis, historical inferences about Jesus' life were arrived at by critical analysis of the various Gospels. 
Jesus is thought to have been born in the year 4 BCE, likely in the town of Nazareth. His parents were named Mary and Joseph, and he had a brother named James. Jesus and James were raised in a lower-class Jewish home and spoke mainly Hebrew or Aramaic. As was true of most lower-class Jews of the time, they were not formally educated and grew up to work in the trades. Jesus became a carpenter, and it is thought that he did most of his carpentry work in the northern areas of Galilee and Sepphoris. In his late 20s, Jesus became a follower of a man named John, referred to in Christian literature as John the Baptist. John was a prominent apocalyptic Jewish prophet of the time, who preached about the end of days, that cataclysmic war between the sons of light and darkness described in the Apocrypha of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was likely that during this time as a follower of John the Baptist, Jesus met a number of his closest friends, who would later become his disciples. At the age of about 30, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. Jesus spent the next few years of his life as a prophet in Galilee, teaching a liberalized version of Jewish law, which prioritized ethics and love over following the specifics of Jewish observance. In terms of his religious and political affiliations, Jesus did not seem to belong to any particular group. He was not a Sadducee, as he believed in resurrection, and was also not a Pharisee, as he did not accept many of the rules and constructs set out by the rabbis. He also did not seem to be an Essene, as his interpretation of Jewish law and teachings was much more liberal in many respects. Over the years, he incorporated 12 disciples as his core group of confidants. It seems likely that he chose the number 12 because he felt that each disciple would end up leading one of the 12 tribes of Israel when they were reconstituted at the end of days. Near the end of his life, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, perhaps because he felt that it was his duty to force God's hand in order to bring about the coming of the Messiah. He famously trashed the second temple as a prophetical act in order to show Jews of the time the kind of destruction God would create to herald the coming of the end of days. It is clear that, particularly in the latter part of his life, Jesus developed quite a following as a prophet, and though it is not clear whether he himself believed he was the Messiah, his followers clearly did. And ultimately the Romans got wind of this and executed him on the charge of treason. He was crucified on a Friday, likely without a trial, as king of the Jews. Before his death, he likely had one last supper with his disciples, where he asked them to perform rituals in his memory after he was gone. Jesus died in approximately 30 CE. Seven years after the death of Jesus, in 37 CE, the emperor Tiberius died, and rule of Rome passed to his grandnephew, Caligula. Like Tiberius, Caligula's first six months of rule were all right, but soon he developed a serious illness and, upon his recovery, began to turn a bit delusional and quite sadistic. He started dressing in bizarre outfits, would frequently humiliate his senators by forcing them to run alongside his carriage or sleep with their wives right in front of them. He ended up marrying his sister and would slowly torture to death anyone who he felt was a threat. Nearer to the end of his reign, he began to view himself as a literal god and ordered that large statues of himself be put up in every temple in the empire, including the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This blatantly broke the prohibition on idols in the temple 
and needless to say, the Jews in Jerusalem were furious. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem proclaimed that if a statue was erected in the temple, the Jews would openly revolt against the Roman Empire. With some gentle coaxing from the Syrian proconsul, Caligula eventually backed down, and the statue was never erected. Shortly thereafter, in 41 CE, Caligula was assassinated in Rome. Caligula's rule had a profound effect on the Jews in Jerusalem. Whereas previously, daily sacrifices had been made in the temple in the name of the Roman Empire, after Caligula's attempted defilement of the temple, these sacrifices began to dwindle, as the Jews were becoming more and more suspicious of their Roman rulers. Caligula's uncle Claudius took over the emperorship next, and did his best to settle things down. He re-emphasized the Roman promise to protect the temple, reaffirmed the rights of all Jews in the empire, and did his best to make peace between the Jews and Egyptians in Alexandria, between whom tension had been steadily rising. Things were looking okay until Nero came along. Nero became emperor at the young age of 16 and was a character, to say the least. He was initially very well liked by his subjects, having put forward a lot of popular changes, but he was also completely nuts. He had been forced onto the throne by his power-hungry mother and had never truly wanted to be emperor. So, as he did not care much for ruling, much of his time was spent living an artist's life, hanging out in brothels and taverns, spending time with poets and artists, getting drunk and acting in various plays. As his rule went on, he became more and more open and outlandish, going so far as to host orgies in the royal palace, and as he did so, caring less and less about the actual duties of office. One of Nero's most important acts as emperor, at least from the perspective of the Jewish story, was to appoint procurators in Palestine who mercilessly milked the population for funds. Along with these procurators came an increasingly lawless and corrupt society, where officials and tax collectors would shake people down for money. Roman soldiers were less and less keen on dealing with day-to-day -day grievances of the people, and Jews in particular seemed to be ignored when it came to complaints of rioting or destruction of property. More and more, Jews were beginning to see the Romans as foes rather than protectors. All of this turmoil, poor rule, and interethnic tension started to push the once peaceful Pharisees more and more in the militant direction of the Zealots as they became more and more desperate to throw off the yoke of Roman rule. The simmering pot that was Judea in the late 1st century CE was about to come to a boil. In 66 CE, in Caesarea, the large seaside city built by Herod, a group of Jews were renting out a local space from a Gentile to be used as a synagogue, and, after having rented it for some time, they wanted to buy the space. The landlord, though, wanted to throw the Jews out, for no particular reason. So the Jews went to the local procurator, Gassius Florus, to ask him to hear their case. They paid him the usual fee, but Florus took the Jews' money and refused to help them. This was understandably frustrating for the renters, but frustration turned to rage when a flock of birds was sacrificed and left at the door of the synagogue, a clear act of idolatrous vandalism. This started a Jewish riot from a small group of Jewish extremists in the area, but the rioters were ultimately arrested by Florus. News of the vandalism of the synagogue and subsequent arrest of the Jewish rioters in Caesarea 
eventually reached Jerusalem, causing an uproar among the population there. Protests got so intense that Florus wound up sending troops to Jerusalem to quell the unrest. And while there, he stole a small amount of silver from the temple treasury, causing further uproar. The local population began to mock the procurator, holding out their hats for money as a humorous nod to his act of theft from the temple. This perceived insolence on the part of the Jews infuriated the local Romans and sparked an eruption of violence between Roman troops and Jewish rioters. In the context of all this conflict, one of the temple priests completely suspended temple sacrifices in honor of the emperor, a deed which was viewed by Rome as an official act of rebellion. It was at this point that the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus, stepped in and led a legion into Jerusalem to help control the riots. But things had gotten far out of hand. Gallus ultimately decided to retreat, but before he could, he was ambushed and killed by Jewish rebels who captured the legion's golden eagle standard. Emperor Nero was notably pissed about this whole situation and sent Vespasian, a Roman general, to help quash the rebellion. Vespasian marched south with 60,000 troops, and his first stop was the Jewish garrison at Galilee, where a Jew named Josephus just happened to be in command. Josephus not only becomes an important figure in Jewish history of this period, but it is from him and his writings that much of this history comes. So, it is important for us both to understand his story to know the history, but also to unpack what biases he may have had. Josephus was born in 37 CE to a Hasmonean mother and a Kohanian father. He was raised in Judea, and in 62 or 63 CE, at the age of 25, he was sent to Rome by his local Jewish leaders to try to liberate some Jewish priests from captivity there. While in Rome, he became enchanted with Roman life, and, just as Herod had a century before, was introduced to numerous powerful political figures. He returned to Judea the following year, by which time the Jewish-Roman War was in full swing. He was sent up north to command a garrison of Jewish rebels at Jotapata, up north in Galilee, to help fend off the Romans. There, he supervised the fortification of caves that had initially been carved out of the mountain slopes by fugitives from Herod's government. Just as the defense was being laid under Josephus' guidance, Vespasian came knocking. The Roman general and his legions surrounded the Jewish fort and led a 47-day siege against the Jews. Josephus tells us that he and his Jewish rebel army tried everything to ward off the Romans, but ultimately the invaders broke through, slaughtering everyone except for the women and children. Having considerably weakened the Jewish forces, Vespasian then sent an officer to Josephus to persuade him and the remaining Jews in the garrison to surrender. Josephus, seeing that the end was near, proposed to the remaining Jews that they essentially commit murder-suicide to avoid capture by the Romans. And so they did. Well, all of them except for Josephus. As the last man standing, instead of falling on his sword as they had discussed, he presented it to Vespasian's son, Titus, pledging his allegiance to Rome and beginning a friendship that would last the rest of his life. Titus liked Josephus's spunk, and persuaded his father Vespasian to spare the man's life. Josephus, in a fit of gratitude, suddenly declared that he had received a message from God that Vespasian would become the new emperor after Nero. 
Now, whether this was a true message from God or just a lucky guess, Josephus's prediction ended up coming true. Upon Nero's death, Vespasian returned to Rome to ultimately become emperor himself. Suitably impressed by Josephus's prophetic skills, Vespasian presented him fine clothes, allowed him to stay in the emperor's private apartments in Rome, and gave him permission to marry one of the other Jewish captives there. While Josephus was living it up in Rome, the Roman armies were continuing to march through Judea, quelling Jewish resistance as they went. And believe me, was there ever resistance. According to Josephus, the biggest show of Jewish force came from the Zealots, no surprise there, a group who had been rapidly expanding with the ever-widening gap between rich and poor in Judea. Partnering with the Idumeans, another group who had long been kept out of the mainstream, tens or even hundreds of thousands of them invaded Jerusalem, massacring both Roman and Jewish guards, terrorizing the captive population, appointing their own priests, and just generally taking charge. They raided the temple, seizing both property and women whose husbands they had murdered for being traitors. It is at this moment, in 70 CE, that Josephus returned to Jerusalem, not as a Jew, but as part of Titus's Roman army. Titus and his men surrounded Jerusalem and conducted a successful two-week-long siege. Josephus claims that he pleaded with the Jerusalemites to lay down their arms and surrender to the Romans. However, the Jews were not keen to listen to a traitor, and they pelted him with stones until Josephus was knocked out cold. The situation was dire, but there were some who managed to escape. In the spring of 68 CE, during a pause in the fighting due to Nero's death, a disciple of the famous Pharisean rabbi Hillel, named Yohanan ben Zakkai, and his two sons fled from Jerusalem to the southern town of Yavne, along with a group of their followers. There they established an academy of Torah study, essentially being the first one of that group of Jews to see religious Judaism as a possibility outside of the temple and Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the Jews who remained in Jerusalem, besieged by the Roman army, slowly began to starve. They started eating their own clothes and equipment, and eventually began to turn on each other, stealing food from their neighbors. There is even a horrific story of a woman, in the throes of desperation, cooking and eating her own child. This is when Titus finally broke through, invading the city and burning the second temple to the ground. Thousands perished in the flames, and the Romans seized all the treasures from the temple, including the holy menorah. The temple, which had stood for 639 years, was gone forever. When Yohanan ben Zakkai and his followers at Yavne heard of the destruction of the temple, they created a fast day on the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av, meant to mourn the loss of the temple and Jerusalem. This fast day is still observed by Jews to this day. There are still some standing remnants of this brutal Jewish-Roman war today. The most famous of these is the Arch of Titus in Rome, a monument built by the Romans to celebrate the defeat of the Jews. And then there is the Burnt House in Jerusalem, an excavated and preserved house in the Jewish quarter that was burnt by the Romans. Upon its excavation, archaeologists found the skeletal arm of a young girl reaching out from the rubble in the house's basement which has been memorably photographed. Josephus, after helping the Romans to quash the rebellion of his own people in Judea, 
died in the second century CE. It is here, with the second temple destroyed and Jerusalem in ruins, that we bring the first season of the Jewish story to a close. Stay tuned for a bonus episode and a sneak peek of season two next week on the G.